0: And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and
1: CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Alexander Vindman is a great American story. A Jewish émigré from Eastern Europe, he devoted much of his life to the service of our country and sacrificed a promising military career to do what he felt his oath required. In testifying against President Trump at his first impeachment trial, Vindman, then a director in the National Security Council at the White House, shone a spotlight on Trump's corrupt scheme in Ukraine. But it also cost Vindman a promising career. He retired as a lieutenant colonel. He tells his story in an inspiring new memoir, *Here, Right Matters, an American Story. I sat down with Colonel Vindman this week to talk about that journey Ironically, it was just before President Biden was to sit down with President Zelensky of Ukraine, a meeting that Vindman had hoped to arrange with President Trump two years ago that was at the core of the controversy on which he testified. Here's our conversation. Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, it's so good to see you. We've seen you. All of us have seen you from afar in your dress uniform uh, before you retired, testifying before Congress uh, in the impeachment trial. We will have a lot of time to talk about that. But but first, welcome, and I want to talk about your extraordinary journey to that point and after.
0: Well, thank you for having me on, David. It's uh, it's an honor. I've I've watched you uh, from afar for you know for decades, and uh, appreciate your your work and. Glad to be on, on this program with you.
1: Thank you. As we were discussing uh, before we started rolling, we, we have something in common in that both our families were Jewish emigres from, uh, uh, from the same part of the world, generations apart. But talk to me a little bit about your uh, story that you wrote so beautifully about in your, in your book, uh, Here Right Write Matters, uh, which w- you recently published. But uh, you, you were born in Kiev. And uh but talk to me about your family history there and what
0: led your family to come here. Sure so uh it, it is amazing how many people I've run across with either recent or deep roots in that part of the world. I think uh one thing that we all kind of shared in common was a um uh, a recognition that the same opportunities that we are able to enjoy here were not available there in different ways. Uh, I think it Seems that with the earlier generations, it was more direct physical threats and, and harm, uh, pogroms, and so forth. And mm-hmm. then with more recent generations, it was the lack of access to prosperity, lack of equality. In, in my case, that was a driving force for my father to make sure that he that we had we could enjoy at least the same kinds of um, benefits that he was able to through uh, focus and uh, willpower achieve uh, in in his life.
1: He and his family, long before you came along, you and your twin brother and your older brother, they faced all kinds of hardship and deprivation. And
0: it's pretty amazing. Um, it's uh, to me, it, it is something that is hard to understand. Uh, growing up in the states and not having to, to face those kinds of challenges, we see it with the you know the Afghan um, refugees coming into the country now. There, they have a a whole different coming to the United States experience or um, a different context for what advers- uh, what uh, difficulties are really like. We don't get to experience that as Americans. My father uh, was born in 1932. He was a, a very young man uh, when the uh, Second World War started. His father uh, was killed in action, uh, but not before he was able to warn my my grandmother, my dad's mom, that the Nazis were coming time to flee uh, Kiev. And if he had not made that warning, uh, it's possible that my family, I would have never existed. My family could have been one of those thirty, nearly 30, oh, more than 33,000 Jews that were killed in the in the Yar massacre. Mm-hmm. But he ended up um, fleeing to, to the Ural Mountains. Russia is a massive piece of territory, thousands of miles away from the front and surviving the war there and then being part of that rebuilding process that the Soviet Union undertook in the in the post war period, you know, with entire the entire western portions of the country completely decimated and building from scratch, and uh, he built a life for himself. He didn't leave until he was forty seven, uh, and we were toddlers at that point, uh, bringing us to the United States. So he had re- restarted his life multiple times. I think that's part of my legacy, and I think that's something that uh, stayed with me uh, in my des- in my recognition that. Uh, if I couldn't do what I wanted to, uh, if I didn't have the same opportunities in the military, it was it was uh, it was totally fine for me to start over.
1: Yeah, no, that's a a, a through line in your book. You write about the fact that he was he was an engineer, was very much a part of the apparatus in Kiev. What persuaded him that he had to go? He obviously
0: faced anti-Semitism. I think there were two probably two two key factors. Uh, one was the fact that my uh, mother, uh, biological mother, was dying of cancer, and he had learned of uh, uh, Raza Shah uh, being treated in the United States for his uh, lymphoma, uh, his um, cancer, and he thought that there was a a reasonable chance of making it over to the United States and saving my mother, uh, um, saving his wife. So that was one of the driving forces.
1: Let's just stop for a second there. We should point out that your book... Begins with you know really uh, kind of searing memories of uh, you and your uh, brother uh, being at uh, a facility basically where you were sent while your mother was was dying. Um, uh, those, how did the loss of of your mom, the absence of her, I guess, is more. How, how did that affect uh, the two of you?
0: I think it, it, in a lot of ways, uh, and, and it's a different experience than my older brother, who's seven years older, who had a chance to know her, we didn't get a chance to know her. And uh, we we were, our relationship with our father is that much stronger because he was, he had been a central f- figure in our life. We didn't have both a mother and a father in those early formative years. Our father was, has always been, my, my father remarried, my stepmother is, is a terrific, wonderful woman. But I think in, in certain ways, our dad's been kind of a central figure, very loving, doting and stuff like that affectionate uh even though he's a tough guy uh in all in to everybody else he's been very close and and um instrumental in giving us our i guess our first dose of character and work ethic and and uh determination and um we recognize him for that we love him and recognize Yeah, him that.
1: you know, you're right about the fact that when you came to New York, uh, the the Hebrew Immigrant Society advised maybe he should think about putting you two up for adoption just to relieve the burden on himself. And he would hear none of that.
0: Yes, I think that's right. Um, it's interesting for me to think about my dad, who, again, you know, is is there's a sense of machismo that uh, I think runs through you know, Soviet men, uh, you know, Ukrainian or Russian men that doesn't necessarily allow them to kind of form that what we, what I would think would be a completely healthy, loving relationship with their children, especially you want to raise your sons to be tough. And he was, he was, he was uh, disciplinary and he was, uh, you know, he's firm with us when he needed to be, but he was also very affectionate. And, um, I think possibly uh, that was probably because of the loss of of his wife, uh, our mother, Um, that all that love that would have, you know, been dispersed amongst a kind of a larger uh, family was was focused on his on his kids.
1: I read in your book that you when you went back in, uh, I guess, 2019 to Ukraine, uh, that you visited your mother's uh, grave site. How
0: was that experience you know, I I uh, just came back from a research trip to Ukraine and working on my doctorate. And uh, every time I'm there, uh, I see it as an obligation to visit my mother and visit my grandmother, my my dad's mom, who I'd never met actually. Uh, and you know, at least because we have no family there, clean up the gravesite, make sure that it's it's in in good repair, and in some way uh, ensure that their memory is not forgotten. You know. Mm-hmm. That that somebody cares about these these people that the rest of their family is thousands of miles away. So I, I did made it a point, you know, on my trip to uh, for the Zelensky inauguration, previous trips to Ukraine to always kind of make it a, a stop and uh, make sure things were in good shape. And that's it's some sort of connection. I guess it's the only real connection we have to that part of the the world. We mm-hmm. grew up here only in the U.S., only knowing America. But um, it, there's a connection to Ukraine in that our, our families are, are, you know, our parents are, my mom's buried there, our, our ancestors are buried there, and those are where our roots are. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe that, in, in part, kind of shaped my keen focus on the region and um, adds to my understanding of Ukraine and the importance of Ukraine.
1: You mentioned uh, refugees from Afghan Afghanistan. The U.S. Op- essentially opened its arms to Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe in the late 70s, early 80s. And you came in that migration. How do you feel these Afghan refugees are going to be received now? And as you know, you you know, you were you served in a White House that was discouraging of any kind of immigration, uh, including refugees. So what do you think the environment is that these that these folks will meet as compared to what you and your family saw?
0: I'll be a little less democratic. I'd say they're nativist and hateful towards uh, non, non-white Americans. I mean, that's mm-hmm. just a simple fact. I am concerned about them uh, about the fact that they might not get a, a warm reception and that society is very polarized. It has been polarized in the past. We know, you know, uh, as students of history, that um, German populations, uh, Irish populations, Italian populations were, were uh, reviled. Uh, when there were surges of of uh, immigrants at those periods of time, and it's unfortunate that you know a lot of Americans forget the hardships that their their predecessors had to encounter. I know when I was through walking through the airport, I it just really warmed my heart to see all those folks that they're still in shock. Uh, you know, moving with probably in the same way that we did, with just a, a handful of luggage and started from scratch. And I just try to give them, even with a mask on, try to give them kind of you know a warm smile or something like that. Uh, to make them feel welcome, because in reality, we should be grateful for them coming here. We should be grateful for them at willing to add their strength to our strength to make this country, you know, adding some may- maybe 100,000 more Americans that want to join the American dream, want to be part of um, this country, uh, willing to give up everything to to join this country, and ultimately, adding to the greatness of this country in the long term. And I'm grateful for that.
1: As I said, I'm a, I'm a, a son of an immigrant and um, proud of that and proud of the contributions that collectively immigrants have made to build uh, this country. But more than that, it feels like we have a special obligation here. And that leads me to a question. And and tell me what your thoughts were. I, I was struck in your book, by the way, that you did your exited interview at the Pentagon with General McKenzie, who everybody watched this week, uh, describe the operation that he oversaw of evacuation. Uh, tell me what your thoughts were this week about this.
0: I had deeply mixed feelings as as things unfolded, uh, you know, over the preceding several weeks about some introspective questions about whether it was worth it, whether the blood and treasure spilled was was worth it. And we spent an enormous amount um, of blood and treasure on a conflict that seemingly didn't do anything for U.S. national security. But I think that's a very superficial take. I think, in fact, there are uh, several different layers that absolutely merit some sort of attention. First of all, for 20 years, we provided uh, a respite for an Afghan population that had no taste of what freedom uh, democracy was like. I think to me, that is, uh, you know, if you could do that for millions of people, that is pretty amazing service. Did it d- directly contribute to US national security? Uh, maybe not. But for humanity, we, we provided a service in the same kind of service that US, the US has taken on as a mantle for, for generations. The other thing we did was we kept the enemy at bay. We fought Al Qaeda. Uh, we fought, uh, ISIS on dis- ISIL on distant shores. Although it's, it's, um, ISIS K obviously kept the homeland safe. I think unfortunately the execution of, uh, the drawdown necessitates two lessons. One is it probably could have been done. it could have done better. It could have been executed better. There should have been better contingencies. Uh, a lot of that blame falls on the, on the Department of Defense. I think, which is well known for developing you know, contingencies that they failed yeah. to do so. And the other thing is that, in fact, I think it adds weight to Biden, President Biden's decision to withdraw. The fact that if the Afghan government, the Afghan military fell apart within days, to me, suggests that another year, another five years would not be at the tipping point. It would be just basically putting in uh, blood and treasure. We we didn't suffer any uh, any casualties over the past year, mainly because we had a negotiated agreement with the Taliban that they wouldn't attack us. If we uh, broke that agreement, we we would have um, victims, and we'd have to deal with more American spilled blood. But to me, it kind of justifies uh, President Biden's courageous decision to get out. My only divergence on this point is that it could have been the the withdrawal could have been uh, managed a lot better. It could have been um, managed so that we withdrew all of the all of the people that we thought we needed to that supported us over the previous 20 years without that kind of the humanitarian disaster uh but other than that to me what this does is frees up enormous bandwidth to deal with other challenges that directly press on u.s national security interests
1: i agree with your analysis and i heard uh Joe Biden make it in the situation room 12 years ago that, uh, you know, we were going to get sucked into uh, an endless conflict if we made uh, counterinsurgency rather than counterterrorism our focus. But um, the people who would argue uh, otherwise would say that that taste of freedom that uh, the people of Afghanistan of Afghanistan uh, got. Uh, has now been wrenched away from them as the Taliban returned. So um, uh, and, and, and therefore, we should have stayed in order
0: to preserve that opportunity for them. I think, David, uh, I think that's um, there are always there are always calculations to be made based on interests and values. I, I That's the way I couch. couch. How, uh, we should consider our national security, how we should consider our foreign, po- foreign policy. There should be a measured analysis of interests and values. And yes, there's a values based reason to stay in Afghanistan, maybe indefinitely. But from an interest perspective, uh, we have other, uh, other obligations, other considerations where we might need to be a little bit more thoughtful on our, uh, the application of our limited resources. It seems to me that if we wanted to take on this role of a human or purely humanitarian role of g- stepping into all sorts of conflicts in the world uh we would run ourselves very very thin as a as a student of you know the collapse of the Soviet Union, one of the things that challenged the Soviet Union is that they were spread so th- so thin across the globe uh, trying to precipitate revolutions and uh communist uprisings we don't now we're a completely different scale you know much more prosperous much more a capable country but we also probably need to focus our, our resources on challenges both internal and external to me part of the, the my my thesis for my doctoral work is that it's because of the global war, the laser focus on the global war on terror that we we failed to really notice the rise of a much more aggressive russia and china and that they, in turn, accepted that the U.S. was not concerned about nation-state actors. They were concerned about global war and terror and uh, acted to upend international norms. I would also, just on the Afghanistan point, I'd just like to close this point because I know there's a lot that we want to cover, is that the Taliban, it's one thing for the Taliban to secure, seize terrain, you know, and uh, uh, occupy Afghanistan. It's a whole different story f- for them to try to rule. The 20 years of the taste of freedom has already, we've already seen that kind of in terms of the way the populations responded to uh, Taliban crackdowns. It is not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy for some 75 or 100,000 Taliban to control a population of 38 million that has uh, an expectation for a different kind of life. And the Taliban's actually, in fact, different. At least the Taliban leadership, they've been based out of Doha for, you know, for a decade. And they understand, you know, what prosperity could be like. I, they want to preserve some of that prosperity for themselves and their their clans, and and uh, you know, their their uh, the tribal elite. At least, I think it's a different country than it was twenty years ago. We left a indelible mark on it, uh, and right now the pendulum has swung very far over to Taliban control over the country, but the population hasn't actually voiced its own, uh, you know, uh, considered thinking on where it wants the country to go to. So we're only seeing things unfold right now.
1: We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. You grew up in Brighton beach. In Brooklyn. Uh, and you really grew up in an enclave of uh, emigres from Eastern Europe, Jewish emigres from Eastern Europe. What? Tell me about that, what that was like.
0: You know, it's interesting. I, I, uh, my father made it a point to extract us from that enclave relatively quickly. You know, we could have grown up like to be Lev Parnases or something like that, frankly who 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 basically was saturated in that kind of mindset.
1: We should point out for those who don't remember, he was one of the characters who was uh, an operative with Rudy Giuliani in yeah. and, and, and the schemes that uh, led yeah. to your...
0: To be fair, he's reformed. He seems to be reformed and uh, you know, a, a vehement anti-Trumper, which is good. We'll take everybody we can for our team. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, my dad wanted to make it a point that he wanted us to kind of acculturate um, you know, immerse in American society, not just the Russian, uh, immigration society of Brighton beach. So we stayed, we were there for about a year and a half. And then we moved, we might as well have moved into a different world because we moved neighborhoods in Brooklyn and we moved from that neighborhood to a neighborhood that was at, you know, at between a new, uh, Asian population that was emerging, a Chinese population, uh, a Hispanic population established uh, Italian population, an Orthodox Jewish population, and that's kind of where we spent most, are probably the last ten years before going off to university.
1: Your family struggled, as immigrant families do. Your your dad, who had uh, you know a professional training, started off uh, as working in a, f- a furniture store, uh, moving uh, heavy yep. furniture, and then became a civil servant and Uh, worked on on water projects in in new york city but there was a period that was really hard for you guys
0: it is a period that's really hard and i'm mindful of the uh our new um future afghans uh, americans uh coming here and having some immense challenges we had a combination of you know some limited support my my dad refused to take you know he he makes it a point to say he was never on welfare he refused to take handouts But in fact, you know, that's that may have been um, his mentality and he was able to cope with that. I think this is a a group of people that's going to need some help. It's going it's a it's a uh, culture change. It's a shock, shocking change in, you know, in the span of a short period of time. They didn't have a chance to make any kind of either the mental or the preparatory adjustments to to thrive in in American society. And I hope uh, we are welcoming and help those folks um, help them join American society if not for themselves, for their children and for the, the future generations to be in, in the best shape possible to contribute to this this country. My dad, uh, you know, maybe this is a formula for success for, for those uh, new folks coming in. He had 2000 index cards and he basically memorized the words on those 2000 card, index cards and tried to string them to get together in like semi-coherent sentences. And that was sufficient for him to pass the civil service exam and, uh, you know, which is technical And and join professional society.
1: The way you describe it, I I think this is not unfair. You you and your uh, twin brother were a couple of knuckleheads running around New York uh, (laughs) in the in the day, uh, doing crazy things, jumping off of stuff, and uh, uh, you know, getting into mischief. Uh, Yes, you weren't a no. Scholar was not a word that would attach to you back then
0: uh i would say i was uh ill disciplined and unfocused some combination of the two of uh you know not the educational system not quite serving us and then us not being internally driven on our own uh and i think the internal drive is actually probably the more important factor but in those early years uh we were you know looking for ways to get our energy out and you know active and running around uh we weren't like criminals or anything we were maybe <laughs> a little bit we were kind of uh, you know a little bit of hooligans
1: but you did carry some of those bad habits of uh, about scholarship mm-hmm. uh, to your first experience with college at American University. Part of it was that you went into the ROTC. You mm-hmm. were very focused on that, wanted to get your, your Ranger badge and mm-hmm.
0: so on. But you kind of bombed out there. We were both, my twin brother and I were both kind of late bloomers. And maybe what we didn't have is uh, we, in a lot of ways, had it a lot easier than my father growing up. Um, and you know, we didn't have to, we didn't really quite understand the consequences of our actions, I would say, simply put, uh, because of that, we didn't realize that, you know, being non-studious, being, um, unfocused was going to have some baggage along with it. What I, in my case, that ended up you know, I was I was uh, suspended from American University. I took a semester off and then I had a chance to reflect on, OK, what, what can I actually do? Can I achieve any of my goals if I continue on this way? And uh, with that bit of introspection, I realized I couldn't. And uh, I went back to uh, State University of New York at Binghamton and frankly finished up with a better GPA than all the rest of my brothers, uh, which, which is good. But who's counting, right? Uh, who's counting? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> And then from there, you know, giving myself a foundation to to enter military service and then start to start the project of improving myself, building the good habits, becoming more disciplined and building on probably what was already a pretty strong kind of ethical foundation, uh, if not all the the best character traits, all those things slowly coming together through public service. And that's why I'm such a huge advocate for public services, that for me, Public service was, you know, kind of a lifesaver. Maybe that's a little bit of an overstatement, but I could have, I benefited immensely. I, you know, all those things that allowed me to get to the White House and uh, serve this country originated with uh, public service and military service. So I'm grateful for that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's very, very clear as you describe your evolution in, in this book that your years in the military, which is a lot of your life. But those early years were formative uh, for you. You spent 18 months in Korea. I was wondering, by the way, when I read that, it, you you also were in the uh, in and around the White House uh, when uh, President uh, Trump had his bromance with uh, Kim Jong Un. And I was wondering, I was wondering how you processed that as someone who had spent 18 months over there and had yeah. observed North Korea from across a very tight border there. What, what were your thoughts then
0: there are two tendencies that i've i've distilled for trump one is to poke is to basically kind of like irritate to 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 to, to troll he loves to do that you know if if somebody says no he's going to do the opposite or if somebody says that's that's not a good thing to do he's going to do the opposite the other thing is you know some some i uh, a overarching desire for self service and uh you know whether that's in that case being a peacemaker so he could be uh you know get a nobel or something of that nature or um with regards to even his bromance with uh, d- uh with Vladimir Putin part of that is to dispel any notions of um unfair uh 2016 elections that that you know that the the Russians ca- all of these things i mean there was a uh, underlying uh logic to to a lot of his actions with regards to to, to authoritarian leaders the other and then the third component which is not negligible is that he's he would he wishes he was like them he wishes he had that kind of power he wishes he had that kind of authority he wishes that he had that kind of uh, he could command that kind of respect and um he couldn't I mean he was his own worst enemy, half measures with regards to his engagement with, with uh, South Korea same thing with regards to uh, you know w- with regards to Russia. With regards to um, the Chinese relationship and uh, trying to push back on on Chinese economic coercion and all of the things that we've experienced with regards to China, uh, intellectual property theft, um, <laughs> uh, the the militarization of um, of South China, East China mm-hmm. Seas, all these things, he just he wasn't able to f- effectively manage. Even though the defense apparatus, the national security apparatus was trying to implement his strategy, but it's the president's own involvement that tended to upend, you know, the successful conclusion of these enterprises. Yeah. He just couldn't manage him.
1: Did you think his flirtation with Kim Jong-un was, I mean, as you spoke in the councils of the NSA,
0: did you guys look at each other and say, this is nuts? Well- there's a way to rationalize some of these things frankly from a from a national security foreign policy perspective if you recall there was a march towards conflict with north korea and at minimum if this was done properly you could you could ease up on the potential for for outright military uh, conflict so that could be rationalized but what you can't necessarily rationalize is the fact that the president sacrificed making progress on denuclearizing Crimea, basically mortgaging uh, a, a security in uh, the Korean peninsula for what amounted to a photo op. Mm-hmm. You know, So if he had done this successfully, he could have traded engagement with yeah. North Korea for something tangible, but he didn't. He
1: gave Kim Jong-un the thing he most wanted, which was that photo op, that sort of recognition of legitimacy, and got very little in return for it. He made an agreement with the Taliban in 2020, uh, released 5,000 prisoners, agreed to an exit date in exchange for, and he did get something, which was they agreed not to uh, shoot at American, uh, fire on American troops uh, during the period in which he was right. uh, withdrawing, but could have driven a harder bargain, clearly. Absolutely. 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 By the way, you see, you saw. Did you see today that the um, the Republican Caucus in Congress in the House is being advised by your old boss O'Brien, who was your National yeah. Security Advisor, your your last National Security Advisor, who presided over the negotiations with the Taliban in some form or sure. fashion as the NSA.
0: Yeah, kind of ironic. You know, it's it's interesting. O'Brien is not a credible figure. Uh, just to, you know, I'll tell you that um, your NSA's typically are very skilled, experienced individuals. Bolton, whether you like him or not, had a wealth of government uh, experience. He For sure. was a hawk, but he he knew his craft. He knew how yeah. to t- function. O'Brien's claim to fame was that he freed ASAP Rocky from the Swedes. That's how he got that job. I mean, it, it, he he is he had no business in that role. He was not competent uh and um frankly he was he was a marginal actor uh he was there as kind of a placeholder because you needed somebody in that in that seat but what what it what it did was basically empowered uh secretary pompeo to to in a lot of ways ride roughshod over uh you know the rest of the national security apparatus uh as it as it ran out of the white house so um i you know it's hard for me to take anything that uh, o'brien says ser- seriously
1: yeah it's uh kind of crazy that he's now the principal advisor to kevin mccarthy and the house republicans on this on this issue which he
0: apparently is david i just want to say something there's something there's a there's a strange dc phenomenon that ex officials no matter from what administration because of the 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 title that they held are somehow kind of still imagined as competent as warranting those positions that to me doesn't make sense and part of this is, is is you know the a media establishment that wants to get somebody on to be able to uh, provide commentary and invites these folks on—that that shouldn't. I mean, these people should not be considered serious national security experts in any way, shape, or form. So, uh, I mean, that's just a, a little kvetch, I guess.
1: Yeah, yeah, kvetch way. I, that's part podcasting, man. You can do that. You served in Iraq. You were wounded in uh, Iraq. Um, tell me what you took away from that
0: experience. Yeah, i think fundamentally um i guess there were probably two things one is that i'm trainable uh you know some people uh, especially in my earlier years would would have thought that i'm not trainable Uh, i'm incorrigible but um i was able to learn my uh my craft and respond in a cool calm collected manner uh under under fire um so that was the first thing uh and that's always a question in your mind you know when when you're in that kind of situation how do you how do you respond and I was, uh, you know, I was, I was happy that I I responded the way I would have liked to. Uh, so that's something. The other thing I learned is um, maybe a, a deeper sense of how the regional, uh, how national, how kind of broader issues uh, impacted on you know just even a tactical situation. The uh, improvised explosive device that uh, punctured through our armored vehicle. Was uh, designed, engineered by the Iranians. So there was already kind of like a, a little regional political uh, uh, understanding, and that's that's not something that as a as a young captain that you necessarily think of. You know w- what's occurring at the operational, strategic level. So I started to kind of expand my aperture on other things that were important, and it was a foundation in a lot of ways for becoming a foreign area officer in the army and. Uh, you know, studying, uh, understanding all of the inputs to foreign policy and national security.
1: This is hugely important because this was the sort of hinge moment in your career when you became a uh, foreign area officer. Foreign area officers are experts in political military operations uh, in specific regions of the world. Uh, and you, uh, you had, you uh, a leg up in in a sense because you had some f- sort of language familiarity but also other familiarity uh, with with Russia and Eastern Europe and you were signed to Russia as a foreign area officer yeah. um, Tell me about about uh, that experience
0: and what wh- how that informed what you saw moving forward. Uh, so first of all I mean I had a very amazing um, military career both as an infantryman, Serving in uh, you know some some of the best uh, military formations under the best military leaders, and then as a foreign area officer, I, I had a pretty much an unprecedented run. I went to Harvard for graduate school. Not only did I re- already have Russian in my background, uh, some some of it self taught, some of it perfected in, in uh, at Harvard. I also picked up Ukrainian, which is one of the one of the reasons I ended up in in my position at in the uh, at the NSC. And then my first uh, assignment out the gate was to, to Russia for th- for two years. I extended for three years. This is during a time where the relationship was, in the beginning, relatively normal. I mean, there's nothing normal about a relationship with Russia, but it was kind of a, uh, a bilateral relationship. And then it went to a complete kind of basket case as the Russians invaded Ukraine. And I was on the ground watching the Russians at- implement hybrid warfare, watching convoys cross the border into Ukraine and, and reporting on those as a, as a, as an attache and, um, having that firsthand experience being asked to join the Pentagon and the chairman of the joint chief staff as his Russian affairs officer there, I drafted the, 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 most critical documents pivoting us away from the global war on terror to, to nation state competition. So I drafted the national military strategy, um, Russia annex and the global campaign plan for Russia and then came to the attention of the, uh, the White House that wanted to better manage our, our adversarial relationship with Russia. And it was almost kind of a straight line from foreign area officer through these developmental positions mm-hmm. to Russia, to the Pentagon, to the White House.
1: Let me ask you, though, you were, you were in the Pentagon during the 2016 election. Yes. How aware were you? What was your level of awareness of the Russian operations
0: in the U.S.? It was about as high as you can get, I guess mm-hmm. uh, i didn 't have let 's say all the access I had at the um, that I had at the White House, which was everything, but I had quite a bit, and I had a very good idea of what the Russians were doing in the united States
1: and Did it give you any pause when you got the offer to go over to the White House, which was I guess after Trump was elected in two thousand and seventeen? Did it give you any pause, especially given the portfolio that you were going to assume over there, to know that the Russians were sort of actively involved in that election and whether with his you know, I'm sure we can still get a debate uh, mm-hmm. about what their, the level of the campaign's involvement with sure. the Russians were. But the Russians were clearly engaged on his behalf. Sure. Did any of that give you pause? that you say,
0: you know, this this feels like it could be problematic? It did. Uh, I, I went through a, uh, I, I would say, an exhaustive amount of deliberation, including to, uh, talking to folks in the White House on uh, McMaster's, t- uh, the National Security Advisor, H.R. McMaster's team. Uh, about what I'd be stepping into, but I also recognized maybe I was the best positioned to have a positive influence on U.S. Um, national security and foreign policy with regards to Ukraine. If I, since I was the one that was uh, had authored these documents, understood what the, the Russians were doing, understood how you know they were operating in Ukraine, I thought that it would be a disservice, you know, um, to to not contribute my capabilities and knowledge to help navigate uh, an, an administration that didn't necessarily have the, the understanding of the Russian threat. And that's really, frankly, why I went in there. I mean, I, I went in there recognizing that it would be perilous. I also, somewhere in the back of my mind, knew that you know there would be certain lines that I wouldn't cross, but as long as the orders were lawful, I would have to obey them providing the best, uh, very best advice I could offer to to the National Security Council, to the White House on what we should be doing with Russia.
1: We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. You were there when I think you had just arrived, maybe when President Trump met with Vladimir Putin in Helsinki and famously stood at a press conference. And when was asked about the 2016 election, said Putin told me uh, that they didn't have anything to do with it. And I don't know why they would have basically siding against all of the intelligence community uh, and all the evidence that spoke to the opposite. What was your what were your thoughts then?
0: Yeah, So that was my first day on the job. I mean, in a way, i wish that uh, Fiona had uh, joked about this. I, I wish that she had, uh, you know, uh, pretended a fainting feint- spell to interrupt that, that uh, press conference that she had joked on, on, you know, a couple of occasions. But um, it was my first day on the job. I was just stepping in, doing all that kind of in-processing things that you do, getting your badges and all that kind of stuff. And I uh, stepped out of all these uh, indoctrination meetings to listen to this press conference because it was important. And then the rest of the day was upended. And I think I had a pretty darn good understanding that, you know, as much doubt as I had about being able to sufficiently advise this administration, it was going to be even more uh, an uphill battle.
1: Yeah. Well, let me put it bluntly. Did you go home to your heroic wife, Rachel, and say,
0: holy shit, what have I done? (laughs) I, I think there may have been a moment like that. I think certainly Fiona... Dr Fiona Hill Fiona Hill yes coming back from that meeting uh you know uh, she asked me to pick up Ukraine also and it's because she i think she realized that there wasn't going to be as much as we would want to do to push back on russian aggression russian's uh you know interference in us domestic affairs and and uh you know i had talked through this idea of if we couldn't do it you know with regards to our bilateral relationship with russia we could do it by hardening the uh the countries around russia's periphery and I, I was happy to pick up Ukraine, which, you know, that was a fateful step, I guess, putting me on the tr- uh, on a collision course with uh, with history and, and Trump uh, and his machinations.
1: This story is well known. It's well told in your book, and I recommend people uh, read it. But it's a little bit like a TV uh, detective story. These pieces started coming into place. Rudy Giuliani emerges uh, in Ukraine, of all places. He starts trying to besmirch the ambassador there, Yovanovitch, who, who you were close to and who you respected. And then president started balking at- The value
0: of Ukraine as a partner.
1: Yeah. And even with the election of a new president, Zelensky, uh, who w- represented some hope for that country, it all culminated in this call on July 25th of 2019 Talk very briefly about that moment, about that call, about how that crystallized all
0: these pieces, about how the picture filled in for you. You know, as you pointed out very well, that this uh, unfolded over the course of um, months. And really, the only thing that was missing by the 25th was whether the president was directly involved. I had heard, uh, I had received reports that the president was involved, certainly Mick Mulvaney was a driving force. He was the president. He was one of your, Chief, uh, chef, yeah. but um, that he was Mick Mulvaney was helping orchestrate this uh, white house meeting in exchange for a investigation into the Biden's drug deal. And uh, the only thing that was missing and what I, maybe my, my reverence for the office of the president was I was unwilling to accept it until I heard it with my own ears was the, the fact that the president was the driving force. It was the president that was, that has was demanding this investigation into the Bidens because he rightly, frankly, rightly assessed that Joe Biden would be his biggest adversary and would ultimately defeat him. He was looking for any advantage he could going into the 2020 elections. And that's what he settled on is is a way to steal the elections, upend free and fair elections.
1: Let let me just ask you about this. You know, you said earlier that uh, Trump, uh, you know, in certain ways, idealized uh, or idolized uh, these uh, authoritarian leaders. Um, you know, a lot of us uh, have been concerned about, you know, less about policy, although you can have policy disagreements, but about the kind of erosion of fundamental democratic pillars here. What what have you seen in that episode and other episodes subsequent to that uh, that are that give you concerns about America, uh, you know, having watched the example of authoritarian countries and how they operate?
0: Yes, this is a well-established doctrine from a lot of it actually originating from the Soviet Union that the, the Russians uh, continued to hone and implement. I mean, one of the examples is this idea of casting a doubt over the fact that there is an absolute truth, that there are facts uh, and that you know uh, based on facts you could draw kind of uh, uh legitimate conclusions the russians have been masterful at undermining truth narratives we we've seen it play out historically with regards to uh the re- where or, you know for instance age originated they they uh, b- claimed that it was a it developed in a us lab we've seen it play out with regards to you know a, a russian and soviet era atrocities uh, and it's interesting that that our own political leadership, uh, you know, from the right at the moment, I don't see this being an issue from the left, but from the right has latched onto these things and has basically adopted an authoritarian toolkit.
1: You went to your brother who uh, was a lawyer uh, at the NSC uh, in the White House uh, for advice when you heard the president ask Zelensky To open investigations into the Bidens. This was at a time when the Ukrainians were desperately wanting the US to fulfill its uh, obligation to provide, I think, $400 million in military aid that they needed to fight uh, the Russians. And it seemed clear to you that that was, that there was a quid pro quo being set up at that moment. Did you know when you went and spoke to your brother and you decided that you needed to report this conversation? What you were opening yourself up to?
0: I certainly recognized that this was a um, a vindictive administration, and that there would be a, a significant risk to my being able to continue on at the White House. But I don't I don't know if I fully kind of understood because I do was doing it behind closed doors in, in official channels that uh, I was going to kind of you know completely imperil my my military career. That's something that I didn't didn't quite realize. One one point to your you know to the Russian tradecraft. The Russians, if you recall in 2014 with regards to Ukraine, they injected this, this idea of illegitimate government, illegitimate elections. They did it you know, months before the Ukrainians conducted their elections. This is the same thing that the president had done as early as the middle of 2020, even before, claiming that the election is going to be stolen. I don't know how that works because he was in power. He was the executive branch. You know, how the, 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 the the Democrats were going to steal it when he, when he was in power. But he was injecting that just so like this, he could try to steal it when he didn't have you know the, the requisite of- Well, uh, he,
1: he followed the, you know, the deep state narrative that there was this deep state that was- And then the insurrection. Through, of course, he yeah. was
0: willing to go as far as to propel an insurrection, violence on the streets to, to retain power.
1: You called him a useful idiot for Putin. Do you, do you believe that there are ties between Trump and Russia?
0: It's ties- you know, there, I mean, you there, know, there, there's always yeah, been talk about real sure. estate and there, there are there potentially can be ties. I don't I'm not privy to to that. It, it could seem, you know, based on on who uh, President Trump was. It's it's quite possible. But what I think is to me is telling is that the Russians are just would, wouldn't manage him as a winning asset. They just wouldn't do that because the potential for the president to kind of spout off at some point saying, oh, I'm only doing this because the Russians have me blackmailed was be something that would be an enormous risk and blow up right in their face. So the reason the reason I describe him as a useful idiot is that they didn't even have to really work that hard. They didn't have to you pay, you know pay him off. They didn't have to uh, entice him with like other things. All they had to do was pander to his ego, you know, pander to his vanity, and uh, you know. Tell him how good looking he was, how competent he was, how everybody's against him. And that's how they got him to, to do what he needed to. And that's why he's, he's it's a classic useful idiom.
1: Were you surprised at uh, the fact that uh, Trump was acquitted in that impeachment trial? And you seemed both wounded and surprised in, in your writing that, you know, your promotion in the military, that your military career essentially was ended because of sensitivity on the part of the Pentagon uh Uh, you know, about your profile and how it might be, how Trump might react and other Republicans
0: might react. So with regards to to his acquittal, uh, it was not a surprise. Um, You know, I was, I'd still kind of had this ideological or not uh, idealistic, rather hope that the Senate would do the right thing, but uh, they didn't. They abrogated their responsibility as per pattern where uh, the party and the executive branch is has never been voted out of, uh, uh voted against in in these types of uh, a, a, events. So there was no, no, little, no chance. But the consequence of that was a mismanagement of COVID. So the president was emboldened going to COVID economic catastrophe, mismanaged, uh, and then uh, a attempted stolen election in which, on a second impeachment, again, the Senate failed to hold him accountable. So to me, the responsibility does, doesn't just fall on. The president as a bad actor it falls on the senate uh failing to do their job what we paid for with regards to my own military career yes i was disappointed with regards to, to the I military mean, we should just
1: let me just interrupt you say that what part of the consequences for you is uh, two days after the president was acquitted you were escorted out of the white house in in you know a kind of weird sort of perp walkie sort of way The thing that I I found poignant was uh, you had this stellar career. You know, you came here as an as an as an immigrant with nothing. You had this stellar career and uh, that seemed limitless. And, you know, you were looking forward to a promotion uh, that you had earned and all that was taken away from you. And the only thing that surprised me about your writing was my experience in Washington. it tells me as I have a high regard for the military, and uh, uh, it, it's an extraordinary organization. It's also a highly political organization. You have to be to survive in that town, Very and true. they play it as
0: well as anyone. Yes. Uh, so I was I was surprised that you were surprised. Well, I mean, you know, I had uh, developed close relationships, and I would uh, I would have expected at least some of my uh, former seniors to to reach out and say, "Hey, you did the right thing." I mean, everybody just kept their head down. I, I think to me what was shocking is that there's a difference between the institution and institutional values and the leadership that actually doesn't in a lot of ways uh, uh, exemplify those values. And I think those th- that's kind of b- borne out in cost with regards to Afghanistan and the fact that you had seniors, you know, for the past 20 years talk about how uh, the, the country was improving and, and, and insisting that we continue maintain, to maintain our mission. But it, uh, it was at odds with the facts, and uh, if any, if it served any interest, frankly, it served their own personal interest of having a, a successful tenure in their position. That's the part that my own views on the military leadership is that there is probably going to be some sort. I, I certainly hope and will advocate for a reckoning and an, uh, uh, an assessment of the lessons learned, the lessons learned from you know their fa- failure to adhere to values in terms of. Protecting one soldier, or uh, and successfully navigating wars, or you know being paraded uh, in front of a uh, Lafayette Park, uh, you know uh, after pr- protests were su- were uh, suppressed. I mean, all these things were hallmarks of uh, a, pol- a political military uh, that was looking to avoid fallout on senior leadership and sacrificing the institution to a certain extent that's the way i see it
1: tell me uh finally how
0: how you're doing today how you see your future now so you know it's interesting uh the the title of the book here right matters is is actually it should should uh it's it's hopeful and it it should be hopeful to people that read it i mean i think you know that that's the way i I wrote it yes yeah sure the whole idea is basically you know being able to navigate a very very challenging series of events in the best way possible doing the right thing in the right way you know not being a, a leaker uh, being using leveraging proper channels in the right way all those skills that i accumulated over 20 years coming together to really de- uh, deal with a uh, an unprecedented challenge and on the back end like i i'm doing now living with the consequences i could live with the consequences i mean am i happy about how things unfolded no there were a lot of personal challenges a lot of challenges with family but. I could end up on the, the back end. I'm working on a doctorate at, at Johns Hopkins. I'm at a think tank. I'm consulting. Uh, I'm, you know, I I wrote a, a, a number two bestseller should be number one. Cause we know the number one book was a work of fiction. Mark Levin's uh, American Marxism, but, you know, it is what it is.
1: Well, maybe it'll be number one after we uh, finish this podcast. You never know. Sure. One thing that's very clear from this book is how important family is to you. And when you returned from Iraq, you got married, and you and your wife, Rachel, tried to start a family. Uh, She had a couple of miscarriages. And then you had a child who was born, a a daughter named Sarah, who lived just a few hours. You now have another daughter, Eleanor, who's obviously the apple of your eye, but how did those losses affect you? How did you experience them?
0: You know, it's interesting. I think uh, I've been blessed by perspective in certain regards. It's the perspective of what's important. It's the perspective of the fact that, you know, there were, there were bigger challenges that I faced that included uh, losing a daughter that included, you know, living in an authoritarian regime regime as a U.S. diplomat at, and hearing. in about my family's up uh family's history uh for my dad um you know before I was born i had that perspective i had the perspective of serving in iraq i had the perspective of you know living in in uh, south korea and understanding you know how just a few kilometers away life was very very different and for me it also it informed a couple of different things it informed my willingness to take personal risks to keep this country different, to make this a place where right matters, it also informed uh, me to maintain a level of positivity that I think is is hard to come by nowadays in the United States. The fact that this country is unique, the country is different. The the people in this country are, you know, amazing, wonderful people by and large. Uh, with the current focal point being, you know, on the on the on the divisive voices. So. Ha- being blessed by perspective has uh, has been has allowed me to to make the kinds of decisions I have to recognize that it's not about preserving my own skin, preserving my career. It's about providing a better future for my daughter. Being able to look her in the eyes and you know not have to equivocate on actions I've taken. Uh, I guess that's the, that that's one of the overarching lessons is that we we need to sometimes take a step back from what's right in front of us and have a little bit of a broader perspective.
1: Well, let let me just say that your daughter Ellie will be able to say of you what you say of your own father, which is you have, you've taught her lessons that will serve her well. uh, And she can be very proud of you. Colonel Vinman. it's good to see you. I wish you the best of luck. I look forward to spending more time with you down the road.
0: Definitely. Uh, It was a great conversation. And, uh, We'll make it a point to try to get together at some point in the future.
1: Absolutely. Be well.
0: Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Alison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder-Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.